Back to Philippians chapter 2. I'm not going to read the entire section again, but I just would like to read before we start this morning in verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, we read this. Have this mentality in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, subsisting in God's form, didn't regard equality with God as robbery or stolen property. Nevertheless, he emptied himself by taking a servant's form, by becoming in men's likeness, and after he was seen or found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient until death, indeed, death from a cross. Now let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing once again as we consider together his holy and infallible word. Father, thank you for the privilege of studying scripture, of hearing it, reading it. This morning as we come to what is holy ground, the glory of your beloved son, the glory of his incarnate life here, and how he suffered here, how he humbled himself here. We pray that as we focus on that this morning, that you will send to us in great measure the Holy Spirit, that your great name would be glorified in the ministry of the word today, that all focus would be upon your beloved son and who he is and what he has done and what it means for your people that he actually did it. Glorify yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul said that uh, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. How true that is. He said that it was his great privilege and honor and ministry to preach and proclaim to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I feel myself unworthy and privileged to stand before you this morning and try to proclaim to you the unsearchable riches of Christ's humility this morning. The key idea in verse 8 is that he humbled himself. And first of all, the apostle features or highlights the setting in which he humbles himself, which is his incarnation. He says, and after he was found or seen in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The second thing that he features in the text is the display, the expression. How did he humble himself? He says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death. Indeed, death on a cross. So I want to focus on those things this morning that the apostle shines the light on in this text. I want to talk about the setting or environment in which he humbled himself, his incarnation, 
And then I want to talk about the display of the manner in which he humbled himself by a life of obedience to God. And then when we've considered those things, I want you to look with me at so what. I mean, after we look at when he humbled himself and how he humbled himself, then we'll consider, well, what, so what? I mean, he humbled himself and he was obedient to God. So what relevance does that have to you? What relevance does it have to me? What difference does it make in the whole scheme of things that he humbled himself? I want to look at the fruit or benefit, the lasting benefit of his humility. So we're going to consider the setting of his humility. We're going to consider the display of his humility. And we're going to consider the benefit or blessing of his humility. Now, first of all, let's look together at the setting of his humility, the earthly or hostile environment in which he humbled himself. We read, and after he appeared in outward appearance as a man. And we already saw that he impoverished himself by taking a servant's form in addition to the form of God. In Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8, we read, Lo, I am come. In the roll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And in John chapter 6, verse 38 and 39, Jesus himself said, For I am come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And then we read in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So the setting, the environment in which he humbled himself was his incarnation that he came into this world taking to himself a true human nature with a genuine human body and a genuine human soul. And he came in the form of a servant. He came to do the will of his father. He came down out of heaven, not in the form of a military leader, but in the form of a servant of God. He didn't grow up in a palace. He grew up in the home of a carpenter in relative obscurity on earth. He came not into a garden of Eden, but he came into a hostile fallen world full of sinners set against God. He came into the society of Hebrew Israel under the old covenant. He was born under the law. He took a human nature in a servant's form under the old covenant society of God's people. In a hostile world, fallen world, set against God. He didn't come into an environment 
of pristine, sinless glory, but he came into this ruined, fallen world. That's the environment. That's the setting. His incarnation, the context of his humility. See it in the text? And it says that he was found in fashion. Now, that word, we, we get an English expression from it to be found. We get eureka from it. The Greek is heurisko. And in the active voice, it can mean to find, but in the passive voice, it can mean to appear or to be seen. And this is passive. And so what it, what it seems to be featuring, it's not that people discovered him. It, that's not the point so much. The point so much is that when he was visible, evident, manifest in his human nature, that he had the outward appearance of just an ordinary man. He took to him, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, as the, as the Christmas carol says. He took to himself genuine human nature, and he looked just like an ordinary man. And when people interacted with him, that's what he looked like. And that was the context and the setting in which he humbled himself. Now, the second thing that's featured in the text, and I want to primarily focus on that, is a display or expression which is completed of his humility. And that is, how did he humble himself? By becoming Obedient unto death, yes, death on a cross. The apostle describes his obedience to God, his obedience to God's will, his obedience to God's law. Like he said, I am come. I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. And what does the law of God say? Well, Paul summarizes it this way. For this, Romans 13, 9 and 10, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this word, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. This is God's revealed will. Love. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't harm your neighbor. Doesn't steal from him. Doesn't lie about him. Doesn't covet what he has. Doesn't kill him and murder him. Love doesn't murder people. Love doesn't covet other people's wives. Love doesn't lie about people. Love doesn't steal their possessions. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfilling of the law. In his obedience, he was obedient to God's law. He was obedient to God's revealed will. He lived a life of love. And this obedience is described by Scripture as perfect obedience he says, his entire life, becoming obedient until death. 
from the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, his entire life was a life of perfect, perpetual obedience. And he features one other thing. He says, indeed, death on a cross. His obedience was not only perpetual and perfect and lifelong, it was also painful obedience. It was obedience until the death and including the death that he suffered upon the cross. His obedience was perfect. His obedience was painful. First of all, consider with me how Christ's life was a life of perfect obedience to God. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus himself said this, And he that sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I do always the things that are pleasing to him. He was conscious that everything he did throughout his entire life was pleasing to God. The Apostle Peter described this life of love in Acts chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. When he speaks of Jesus, he says, even Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good. His whole life was a life of love. You read about it in the Gospels. Healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. He did good. He delivered people from the power of darkness. His whole life was a life from, from dawn to dusk, a life of love and grace and compassion and mercy upon his society. He was filled with love. And you can read the story about his love of his public ministry that he displayed so openly and clearly in the gospel. He didn't cheat anybody. He didn't lie about anybody. He never coveted anybody else's wife, and he never committed adultery with Mary Magdalene or anybody else. As some people perversely claim today, that he had some kind of a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene, absolutely blasphemous and a lie and false. He didn't break the seventh commandment. He didn't have murderous hate in his heart for anybody. He didn't do any of those things. And he was filled with love and goodness and kindness and grace to his whole society and people around him. He was constantly doing good for people day and night. Read about it in the Gospels. Peter summarized it. His life was a life of doing the will of God. Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where he says, speaking of Christ, him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does it mean that he knew no sin? Well, it doesn't mean that he didn't comprehend and understand what sin was. Of course, he understood what sin was. 
doesn't mean that he never perceived sin around him. Of course he did. He accused people of sin all the time. But what it means is that he never had any personal involvement with, any personal intercourse with sin. He never personally engaged in an act of sin in his heart, in his words, or in his actions. Never. He knew no sin. He never personally was involved with it in committing it. Never, not once, in his entire life. Again, we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer to Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that has been in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Now, here's a great mystery. An impeccable divine person in his human nature with his limited human mind and his human will actually experienced temptation. How can that be? I don't know. I can't explain that. But there are lots of things about the Bible I can't explain. Because human logic is not our final authority. Our final authority is the word of God. And it says that God the Son, when he was here on earth, in his human nature, an impeccable divine person, was genuinely and truly in his human mind and will tempted to sin. He really felt and experienced temptation in his human nature. And yet, he never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. He never committed sin. His life in entirety was a life of perfect, sinless, from heart to word to action to feeling. In his entire life, he never once sinned. His obedience to God and his revealed will is absolutely perfect and flawless and perpetual from the moment of his birth even until the moment of his death. And finally, the same writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, for such a high priest became us, holy, guileless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens who didn't need to offer up sacrifice for his own sin because he didn't have any sin. Personally sinless, separate from sinners, didn't have original sin or actual sin, filled with integrity, not guile. A pure, perfect, sinless human soul. And he lived a perfect life. And that is completed. It stands manifested once and for all. But look also what he says 
about his obedience. He says that his obedience was not only perfect and lifelong and throughout his entire earthly life. He says that it culminated in his death and it includes obedience to God at the cross and in the cross and in experiencing the cross. Became obedient unto, until death. He didn't cease obeying God during the period of his suffering. He was obedient to God even through the painful experience of suffering and death. The writer to Hebrews also describes the painful obedience of Christ. In Hebrews chapter uh, 5 verses 7 and 8 he says this. Speaking of Christ who in the days of his flesh having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears to him that was able to save him from death and having been heard for his godly fear, though he was a son, though he was a son, yet learned obedience through the things he suffered. He learned? Yes. God the Son learned? Yes. An omniscient divine person learned? Yes. I can't explain that either. How did he learn? He learned in his human mind. Because his human mind is not infinite and omniscient. His human mind is a limited human mind. And in that limited human mind, he learned. He learned to obey through suffering. His obedience not only perfect throughout his whole life, but painful. Learned through suffering. Matthew records what the writer to Hebrews is speaking about in Matthew 26, verse 38 and 39. Jesus said to his friends, the three apostles that were with him at the time in Gethsemane, he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Abide here and watch with me. And he went forward and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Father, if it's possible, let this pass away from me. He was suffering, and he knew he was about to suffer even more. Nevertheless, not what I want, but your will be done. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He knew that he was going to die. And he was experiencing the feeling of sorrow in anticipation of what was knowing he knew would be his certain death the next day. He knew he was going to die. And he didn't simply know that he was going to die. And he was going to have horrible suffering in his body and in his soul. 
shame and humiliation before the whole society. He knew all that was coming, but it was worse than that. He knew that his father was going to inflict upon him his wrath due to all the sin of all his people when he made him to be sin and he punished him and inflicted the penalty of sin upon him. He knew it was coming. He was suffering the anticipation of the wrath of God. And yet he was willing even to go that far to obey God. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. He learned obedience. He was willing to pay the price, any price, even enduring the wrath of God to deliver his people in order to obey God. I mean, what do you say to something like that? He did it prayerfully. Peter describes this obedience of Christ in 1 Peter 2, chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, describes this aspect of the painful obedience of Christ. It says, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And this is it. Who? Verse 23. When he was reviled, did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He committed himself to him that judges righteously. He learned obedience, painful obedience, through the things that he suffered. And when he suffered, he prayed to God. He committed his soul to God. He committed his life to God. He committed his cause to God. He trusted God. He didn't become embittered through the wrongful treatment and suffering inflicted upon him. When people cursed him, he didn't curse them back. They reviled him. He didn't revile them back. He wasn't filled with bitterness and hate in his heart. Committed his cause to the God who judges justly. Learned obedience through the things he suffered in his human mind, in his human heart. Who can fathom it? So the apostle describes how he humbled himself. He says he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death. He humbled himself with a life of perfect, perpetual obedience. And in his death, painful obedience. And it's finished. It's done. It's completed. His life of obedience is a finished work. It's all done. Painful obedience, finished, completed, once for all. That's how he humbled himself. So we look at the setting, the hostile environment of his humility, the finished display of his humility, his perfect, painful obedience in his whole life unto death. 
Now, finally, this morning, folks, so, so what? Does that have any relevance for you and me? What do you think? You don't know? You think it does? It does, doesn't it? Could you, could you imagine anything that has any more profound, lasting relevance than what Christ did? So I want to talk about the lasting benefit. I want to talk about the permanent fruits, the momentous impact, the immeasurable, immeasurable value of what he did. Singular, immeasurable, profound, blessed, permanent, lasting. I couldn't figure out which words to use. The impact, mammoth, monumental. First of all, this is why I wanted to sing number 440. In you, we have a righteousness by God himself approved. The law, you, Christ, perfectly obeyed that we might enter heaven. So by the righteousness of one are sinners justified. This obedience of Christ, first of all, provides and is the merit, the righteousness, the virtue of his people by which sinners who believe are made right with God. The Apostle Paul says, Describing the obedience of Christ, the once for all, finished, perfect, perpetual, sinless, virtue, obedience of Christ. Romans 5.19 For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, as we sang in the hymn. As all when Adam sinned alone, in his transgression died. For as through the disobedience of Adam, the one, one man's, the many, all of his posterity were made sinners. Listen. Even so, through the obedience of the one, through the obedience of Jesus Christ, through the virtue and merit, we to your merit, gracious Lord, with humblest joy submit. The merit, the virtue, the obedience of Christ. Even so, through the obedience of the one, shall the many be made righteous. His life of perfect, perpetual, painful obedience, completed, finished, displayed, standing manifested once and for all. That virtue of Jesus is the ground of sinners who believe being right with God. That's what it is. The ground of our justification. Another hymn in number 99 says, The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood Hide all my transgressions from you. 
Blessed be God. Unsearchable riches of Christ's obedience. Christ's perfect obedience in which he humbled himself. This is the ground. Sinners being made right with God. This is the very heart of the gospel. But there's a second thing. He's not only, his obedience is not only the merit of his people who believe in him. It is also the model for his people. His obedience is also our example. Not only our righteousness, our virtue, the ground of our justification. He's also our example. As we sang in that last hymn, but in your life the law appears drawn out in living characters. We see in his life a picture, an example, a model of humility and obedience to God for us to follow and imitate. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Right in the earlier part of that verse that we already quoted from, he says in verse 20, for what glory is it? If when you sin and are buffeted for it, you take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. For hereunto, that is unto this, you were called. What were Christians called to experience in this life? Doing well and being mistreated in response to the good things we do. Having a society and people in many different contexts that hate us and revile us and mistreat us, not because of evil things we did, but because of the good things we did. This is what we were called for. Still want to be a Christian? This is it. This, that's the deal. You get to do good your whole life and be treated like you were a bad person. That's it. That's the deal. Now, here's the rest of the story. Because unto this you were called. Now, listen to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is what happened to him. And God is giving us the honor of following his example in a fallen world. He did nothing but good, had nothing but love, and he was mistreated, hated, spit upon, brutalized, crucified, maligned. That's how they treated him. And God has given us the privilege of following his example in this world. And to the degree that we are identified with Christ in his humiliation and mistreatment, to that degree, we will be identified with Christ in his glory. That's why when the apostles were beaten before the Sanhedrin, they left the place rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. That's why Jesus said, this is how you should respond. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. This is how you should respond when people hate you despise you, persecute you, cast out your name as evil for my sake. That's what you do. Rejoice in that day. 
and leap for joy. What? Leap for joy? Well, what kind of mentality would I have to have to leap for joy when for Jesus' sake people hate me, despise me, persecute me, say all kind of bad stuff about me? Why should I be leaping for joy? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus Christ left us an example. His life of perfect obedience to God is a model for us to follow. I'm not saying that we can attain sinless perfection. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying that he is the perfect example of what it means to live a life pleasing to God. And we should follow in his steps and imitate him and be like him. Does that make sense? It does, right? Now, all that being said, let me try to drive it home. What have we seen? First, let me sum up. What have we, what have we seen today? Well, we looked at the environment, a hostile environment in which he humbled himself. In his human nature, in a servant's form, in a hostile world, the incarnation. Secondly, we looked at the display, the finished display of how he humbled himself, a life of perfect, sinless, perpetual obedience that was perfect and painful, culminating in the death of the cross. Finally, we looked at the tremendous importance of it that his life of perfect obedience is the merit and the model for his people. So, Christ displayed humility clear. The proud don't take orders. The proud don't obey anyone. You can't tell a proud person what to do. They won't submit to anybody. They won't obey anybody. They are unmanageable. Incorrigible. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered, but the proud don't listen. And the proud don't learn. They're unteachable. Jesus committed himself to him who judges righteously, but the proud don't pray. They don't need God. They don't trust God. Instead, when they experience unpleasant things, they become bitter and they blame God for all the wrongs and hurts that they endure. It's the contrast between pride and humility. The proud don't listen to anybody. You can't teach them anything. And to blame God for everything. This is the way arrogant people think and act. And what does it take to change somebody from godless arrogance and pride to genuine humility? I'll tell you what it takes. Grace. Grace. If you're filled with the kind of pride that won't listen to anybody or you can't be taught anything, you won't learn anything, and you won't obey anybody, 
Nobody's going to tell you what to do. Nobody can teach you anything. You already know it all. And you're filled with bitterness toward God. You don't trust him. You blame him for every bad thing you ever saw or dreamed happened. You're filled with pride. Your heart's not right with God. You know what you need? You need grace. Grace changed the hearts of sinners into saints. Christianity is all about grace. God offers you grace. Grace changes proud hearts into humble hearts. Teaches incorrigible hearts that cannot be managed into submissive hearts that want to do God's will. It changes unteachable hearts that won't listen and won't learn into teachable hearts that want to know God and his will. Teaches bitter hearts that blame God into trusting hearts that commit yourself to God and pray to God. Proud people don't pray. Proud people don't trust God. Proud people don't want to learn. Proud people don't want to listen. Proud people don't want to do what God says. They won't do it. But you don't have to stay that way. If you come in here today and you're and you know that what I just said describes in large measure your life. The Bible is like a mirror that you can get up in the morning and see what you really look like. And it's, it, it, it gets easier as you get older to deceive yourself as to what you really look like when you look in the mirror. If, you, if, you, if I can see myself, you know, looking this way or that way to hold a mirror up to me, I've got to face the truth. Never forget, I was riding in an elevator one time, had a mirror on the top of what I learned about the top of my head. Never wanted to ride that elevator again. But look, the Bible is like a mirror, folks. It shows you stuff about yourself that you don't necessarily want to see, stuff that's not pretty. If your life is full with pride, I'm not saying it did me good to see the top of my head had no hair on it. I saw it. But I'm telling you one thing, if you see yourself in the mirror of the word, it is going to do you good. It's going to do you good if you don't forget. But the people that are hearers and not doers of the word, they see themselves in the mirror of the word and right away they go out the door and they forget what they saw. Please don't forget what you saw. If you saw yourself as prayerless and bitter and unteachable and incorrigible, you saw the truth about yourself, that you don't want to listen to anybody, you don't want to learn, you don't pray, you don't trust God. Nobody can tell you what to do. You see that about yourself? Don't go out of here and forget it. And pretend that that's not what you're really like. If that's true and your heart is filled with pride, you don't have to stay that way. Grace changes arrogant, proud hearts into humble, contrite hearts. Grace changes the wicked sinners into saints. Grace has changed many people in this room. And grace can also change you. So I, I entreat you. In the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You saw yourself as unlike Christ and filled with pride? Don't stay that way. You don't have to. 
Don't break the mirror. Because you don't like what you see in it. Face reality. Deal with it. How do I deal with it? Repent. Believe. We're not justified on the grounds of our humility. We're justified and made right with God on what ground? On the ground of what Christ did. His perfect obedience alone. Received by faith alone. By means of grace. Because of grace alone. We deserve to go to hell as much as you do. But you don't have to go there. God changes proud hearts. Changes them in repentance and faith. The ground, the basis of our acceptance with God is not our own works. It's this obedience of Jesus that we read about this morning and we looked at this morning. So by the righteousness of one are sinners justified. So get right with God. Call on him. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not on the ground of your humility, on the ground of his humility. It's displayed permanently once and for all in his perfect life. His obedience unto death. For those of you that are already saved, what do you say to this except, dear God, thank you. Blessed be your name. What can I render to God for all his kindness shown to me? What can I say to God for what he's done for me? All the goodness he showered upon me. I'm a wretched, hell-deserving sinner, and he's given me his son who was willing to come here and do this so that I wouldn't go to hell? Praise be to God. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my heart, my soul, everything I Follow, dear friend, the example of Jesus. And praise God for the virtue of Jesus. The virtue of his obedient, perfect life. So we've considered this morning his humility. May God be pleased to bless it. Make it profitable to every heart. Let's pray.